You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 48 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode I am joined by Howard Scott Warshaw. And if you are a hardcore gamer then this man is a legend. He has created both what is considered the best game ever made, Jar's Revenge, as well as the worst game ever made, E.T., both on the Atari 2600. Howard is also an accomplished psychotherapist, author and filmmaker. So thanks for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So uh, tell me a little bit about who you are and a short bio of yourself. Uh, short bio. I don't know if I have a short bio. <laughs> My life has been about doing a lot of different things, but uh, I'm most noted possibly for uh, work that I did at Atari early on in video games. I uh, did Yars Revenge and Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. and uh, Saboteur. Uh, then I've done movie making as an award-winning documentary. Uh, I've written several books on psychology, on going to college, and on playing gambling card games. I had a real estate broker's license for a while. I'm now a uh, licensed psychotherapist, which is work I really enjoy and find tremendously, uh, tremendously gratifying and satisfying and, and infinitely challenging. And uh, I have a wide educational background and... Uh, diversity, I guess, is my theme. I just really like uh, exploring and discovering new themes, ideas, and skills, and adding those to whatever my current collection is and seeing where that takes me. You have the moniker, the Silicon Valley Therapist. Why this uh, title? That's a very good point. I'm the Silicon Valley Therapist because I'm I'm, I'm unusual in the sense that I, I, I tend to cross boundaries. Uh, traditional boundaries between various skills or abilities or desires. So there are not a lot of engineers and high-tech people who are uh, therapy-focused. It's an unusual thing. There aren't many therapists who come from high-tech and there aren't many high-tech people who go into therapy. But I think there's a, there's a real need to cross that barrier. Uh, I think there's uh, an both, I think both communities can benefit tremendously uh, from each other, and they both have a lot of uh, prejudices, frankly, about the other. And I think it interferes with their ability to actually help each other. So I've been in high tech for 30 years among doing a lot of other things. And so when I became a therapist, uh, I felt it was really worthwhile to specialize in uh, high tech people. I know there aren't many therapists who have the kind of technical background that I do or have the experience working in high tech. So I can understand the stresses, uh, which are enormous, and the kinds of uh, personal conundrums that arise from working in Silicon Valley and high tech, dealing with startups, IPOs, the kind of disappointment and failure you encounter on a regular basis, and the kind of dealing with the kind of success and satisfaction that people have. Those are all things that I specialize in here in Silicon Valley. What do you think is the main difference for people who design video games these days to when you were doing it for Atari? Well, it's a huge difference now because originally doing a video game was a, a work of authorship. You were an auteur making your own project. It was more of an artistic endeavor. And uh, I programmed, I did the graphics, I did the sounds, I did everything on my own. It was one person on the project originally. Now there can be hundreds and hundreds of people and lots of specialization and lots of, it's like, it's like the difference between uh, a motorboat, a small motorboat and a large cruise ship, right? A large cruise ship can deliver a tremendous amount more stuff on a trip, but it's a longer, slower trip and everything you're going to do has to be planned in advance. You can't just turn. 
you have to have a wide sweeping shift in direction gradually and slowly. The uh, inertia in a, in a, in a modern uh, game projects is huge. When you talk about the console games, it just requires huge staffs. There's, uh, the design is split. Uh, there's less buy-in, I think, less individual buy-in in the project. Uh, the thing that I liked about it was it was, at Atari, it was my project, and it went where I wanted it to go. If I wanted to change direction, I just did, and I could experiment, and I could play with it. That flexibility is missing in today's uh, console development. And uh, you've made, uh, I heard in an interview, you said you made uh, the greatest game ever made and the worst game ever made. Can you explain the difference between these? Yeah, one sold better. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it's true. I did uh, Yars Revenge, which is frequently cited as one of the best games of all time, and E.T., which uh, people frequently say is the worst game of all time. So the great thing about that is I figure I have the greatest range of any designer in history. And uh, the difference between the games, well, the major difference between the games is that one of them was done in basically six or seven months, and one of them was done in five weeks. And I'd say that's the biggest difference in the games, because they're both innovative games, and I always want to do something that's new and unique when I approach a game or any kind of endeavor, really. I want to do something in a fresh way. I want to find uh, new ways of doing things and, and, and to demonstrate new capacities and capabilities. In Yars Revenge, I did that quite a bit. In fact, there are a number of things in Yars Revenge that went on to become industry standards, and the first time they appeared was in Yars. Um, E.T. had a number of firsts. It had context-sensitive uh, facilities and capabilities. Uh, it had a 3D playing space. Uh, it had a lot of very innovative features, but it was done in such a short time frame that the, uh, what happened was the game had to go before there was a tuning phase. Ordinarily, when you develop a game, you create the basic game that you had thought of, and then you start tuning it. You start dealing with it. You start finding out what's wrong with it and what's right with it and addressing those things. You enhance the uh, aspects of it that you feel work, and you try to work around or eliminate the aspects of it that you feel don't work. And I never got, I didn't have the time to do that part of the development with E.T. And I think that's the big difference, is you always had a lot of time to refine. E.T. did not. Your, uh, your game, uh, and you as well, but ma mainly your game E.T. is a big uh, part of the angry video game nerd movie he made. And uh, uh, with uh, spoiler alert, but uh, in, uh, in the end of that film... Uh, you kind of get uh, credit, or what do you call it? You um, uh, that in fact, ET is not such a bad game, considering the right at the end of that movie. James Rolfe, who's the angry video game nerd, uh, actually does review ET, the thing he's refused to do for his entire career. And when he does, he acknowledges that the game was actually ahead of its time. It was a pretty solid game, and it was uh, certainly not the worst game of all time. A lot of people say that, but I actually prefer when people do identify it as the worst game because I like having that uh, that distinction. I also wanted to ask you, uh, I don't know how this title of this game came about, but did it evolve over time or i mean did it affect you personally did it make did you enter like a depressed period if when people said this in the beginning so uh, a lot of people think this was a very difficult ride from the beginning and it wasn't from the beginning because see most people who talk about this now first of all they're young people who don't really know what it was like to grow up in the time that that game was made. And so they assume that things were like they are today, which we all do. We all assume things were the way, always the way they are as we experience them. Now, if the game came out, you know, people used to think of it in terms of, oh, okay, if anybody sees it at all, if anybody takes a look at something, it's all over the place. The criticism is there. There are news forums and social media 
All of that is right there and in place and available, and the feedback is immediate. Is immediate. Like two days is a long time to wait for feedback now. But you have to remember that when, when I did ET, uh, there was no social media, there was no internet. Okay, so uh, it took uh, weeks to months to really start to collect the feedback in the market. And then it took time to coalesce it and for it to start penetrating media and for, for reactions to start to occur. So when I first finished the game, it was just a tremendous success because I had indeed finished a game that looked good enough and was reasonable to go out as an actual video game. And so that in and of itself was a huge success uh, within Atari. And when it first started to sell, when it hit the market, the initial sales figures that we saw were huge. Okay. See, now, you know, you'll have a wave of people buying something online and then they'll review it and you'll get that feedback. And the whole, the whole cycle between releasing a product, getting some actual uh, player feedback, and then deciding if more people want to purchase, that cycle can happen in a week or less. Okay, back then that cycle was months and months. So there were a number of months where you know it was doing great. The game was on the it was at the top of the uh, you know they call the uh, the Billboard top forty game sales. You know Billboard magazine tracked the game sales and a number of other things, and it was at the top. You know I had two games that were top of that list: Raiders of the Lost Ark and ET were both my games. And they were both topping the sales list in the Christmas of 82. So again, there was no negative feedback at that point. Okay, it was all positive feedback. The other feedback didn't start coming until uh, returns started to happen. Uh, in As we got into 83, uh, returns started to occur and, and games started to come back and people started to realize something was a, there was a problem there. And, and that's when Atari's awareness of the, of, the, of the issues started to emerge. But this was just one of a series of issues they were dealing with. And again, it still wasn't really critical feedback of the game so much as it was just, you know, the ultimate feedback, which is it wasn't selling after it had sold several million copies. It just stopped. And so then people, then Atari started to realize there was some trouble. The idea that it's a horrible game, that it was the worst game ever made, stuff like that didn't really start to occur until into the 90s. I don't think there was any time in the 80s. And, that, and that's for two reasons. There's two reasons why it didn't become the worst game in the 80s. Okay, One is that uh, we didn't have the feedback for it and there were other issues and problems that were going on. So... There's the social media aspect, and that was not in place. The other reason was it wasn't long enough for, uh, for there to be an all-time. Right? When we talk about the worst game of all time in anything or the worst anything of all time, there has to be an all-time. Right? So when things first start, at the beginning of an industry, you know, at the dawning of television, no one ever said, well, this is the worst TV show of all time. They just said, oh, I don't like this show. Right. And it's because in the beginning of any kind of endeavor, there's no oldies. Everything is a newie. They're all newies. OK, you have to have oldies before you can start talking about all time and, and the best or worst or whatever. And there just wasn't that that it was in, in the 90s. Then there was like a 15 year, 20 year history of video games. And then people would start to talk about like of all time. So like. It, 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 it wasn't the worst game of all time simply because there wasn't an all-time. You know what I mean? So that's the major reason why nothing happened early on. And also, there was much slower feedback cycles. Then in the 90s, it sort of became uh, the worst game of all time, and, and then it remained that way for a while. And then there was the legend of the burial, and that started to gain momentum. And these are all things that as, as, as 2000 came around and the Internet started to proliferate and people had the opportunity to do more discussion and uh, sharing about it, that was when some of these things really started to take root and move on. And then the advent of hating. 
right? Hating is sort of like a social phenomenon. And uh, people love to hate. You know, it's just it seems like that's a big thing, you know, in modern culture now. Or it was for a while. I don't know if it's as big now as it used to be. Maybe hating is falling out of vogue. <laughs> How nice would that be? But, uh, you know, haters got to hate. And they need something to hate. And E.T. just sort of became a lightning rod for haters. So once again, E.T. became the focus of social media, which it seems to have done for quite a bit of time. It's been like the darling of social media. It's always got some aspect of it that people are interested in. So for a while, people love to hate it. And for a while, people love to speculate about it. And now there's been a great deal of attention to where it actually is and what actually happened with it. And all of that has kept throwing me into the focus of what's going on as the creator of the game. Yeah, the whole mythology about them burying the, the game. And then I also saw there was a documentary about trying to find find where it was buried. Yeah, Atari Game Over. It's actually on Netflix and Showtime and a few places. Uh, it's a great movie. Zach Penn is the director and... And uh, Microsoft hired uh, uh, the Chins, Jonathan Chin and Simon Chin, to go ahead and make a story about the uh, the search for and the either uncovering or invalidating of the myth that uh, E.T. was so bad that Atari had to go bury it in the middle of the desert in New Mexico. And uh, they did a great job. They made a really, I think, engaging movie. Uh, yeah, so Atari Game Over is the story of the search for the games. And as everybody knows at this point, you know, they found the games, they, but they didn't just find E.T. So the myth was both true and false. It was true that games were buried. It was not true that it was just an effort to get rid of E.T. Right? They had just cleared out a warehouse. So they had dumped a whole bunch of stuff in there, and all kinds of things were found in that landfill. It was a very exciting moment, though, to be there. It was an, that, was, that was truly one of the amazing days of my life. April 26th, 2014, in a sandstorm, a vicious, vicious sandstorm in the middle of the New Mexico desert where everyone was gathered to see what happened, all the digging equipment and stuff. It's really, it's really something to see. I definitely recommend anyone, even if you're not a super gamer or gaming enthusiast, This movie was made to have a very widespread interest because really what this movie is about is about huge failures and resiliency and shame and people trying to cover up their tracks and also pride and uh, overcoming adversity and surviving uh, great difficulties to still succeed. And that's really the theme of my practice. That's what I do as the Silicon Valley Therapist is I really help people deal with failure, disappointment, and unrealized dreams uh, from the point of view of moving on, being resilient, uh, starting again. Failures are always the opportunity to learn, right? I mean, that's really what it is, but it's only an opportunity. Not everybody learns from failures. You know, those who do not learn the lesson of history are doomed to repeat it, right? And so... Uh, I happen to be the author of one of the greatest failures of our generation. But I also am very much about success. And I feel that failure is failure is not an end. Failure is a launching point. It's a place from which you make your next move. For some people, failure is an end, though. For some people, failure is a tremendous roadblock. And people can get stuck because they focus on the fact that they failed Instead of focusing on how did this go, why did it go this way, and how am I going to do it differently so I'm not going to repeat my same mistake. In fact, that's kind of how I look at learning in general. I don't look at, see, to me, the product of learning is not doing things right. The, the, the most effective course of learning to me is making as many mistakes as you can as fast as possible and learning from each of them and only making them once. You know, that's learning. To me, learning is making a lot of mistakes, never repeating them, and coalescing all the information I get from the mistakes and bringing that to my next endeavor. And then over time, I think what happens is we're always both failing and succeeding. I think that's always happening. 
But I think what happens is if we pay attention, if we're well equipped for life, uh, we develop a mindset wherein as time goes on, our percentage of failure decreases and our percentage of success increases because our backlog and base of knowledge and experience increases and it makes us more effective as we move forward. And where some people suffer is that they have a tremendous amount of really valid and worthwhile experience that they ignore and they focus on the idea that they didn't succeed and they get depressed instead of excited. And I help them convert that sadness into joy by helping people refocus on, not on what successes they've had, but by refocusing on how much they've learned and getting back in touch with the value of that experience and then moving forward from there. And I find that to be a very effective way to work and it's very exhilarating for the people I work with and this is, that's why my work is so satisfying, right? I take people who are in a very difficult place and I help them find their own way out. And uh, they become out tremendously empowered and really excited about where things are going. And to witness that process, to be a part of that process, and to see people come in where they're so down and so beaten and have them leave enthusiastic and, and ready to move forward and see them succeed moving forward. That's a tremendously exciting experience. On some level, I'm sure that's part of the parental experience, but it's uh, it's just a wonderful place to be professionally. I really feel blessed that I've achieved what I have in my life at this point. And, of course, that's a product of me gathering and coalescing the experiences that I've put together, which are many and varied, and, uh, and putting it all together in a way that's very positive and supportive and helping a lot of people. I'm, I'm just, it's a, it's a good day to be me. I'm, I'm very, uh, very happy where I am now. But don't you think if, you know, with today's social media, if you have a major failure today, one big problem is, is, could be shame because, you know, you have the whole world knowing about what you failed at instantly. And I, I imagine that could be more difficult these days. Well, you know, Shame, I don't think shame is something that's inherent in the things that I do. Shame is a choice that I make to take this on. Oh, I, I don't mean you. I just meant general for somebody. Well, I mean generally also. I'm saying that for anyone, shame is a choice, right? I don't think shame is a fact. Uh, failure is a perspective, right? Did I really fail at something? Well, if I didn't achieve my objective, well, it depends on how I'm viewing it. But failure can be a fact. Falling short of goals can be a fact, right? But shame is a choice. Shame is a choice that we make because you can, there are people, you know, think of the people who we look at and we go, oh my God, they're shameless. They have no shame. Okay. You know, like, you know, probably people in your life, you see them do the horrific things or whatever. You go, oh my God, have you no shame? People have no shame. We have expressions that involve that. So obviously we have noticed at times where people are doing things we believe should be shameful, yet those people don't react in shameful ways, okay? Now I'm not saying no one should care about what they do. What I'm saying is shame is a way of, of punishing myself. And punishing myself I don't think accomplishes much of anything, okay? What I think is much more effective is learning. And shame is not necessarily a good teaching mechanism. Right, because if I do something wrong or bad or something I don't want, I didn't really want to do, and then I shame myself for a while, how have I prepared myself to do better next time? How have I fixed it so that the next time I'm in the similar circumstance, I don't just do the same thing, just shame myself again, and then go out unchanged from where I was? That's why I think shame really doesn't have much value or much place in a a forward or progressive strategy. I think what's important is recognizing honestly and clearly where I fell short of my objectives and why did that happen? Why am I disappointed? Okay, why did my hope or dream go unrealized? And how can I do it better next time? 
How can I take advantage of a lesson that I've learned? And that's the thing. So people go, why don't you feel bad? The worst game of all time. Don't you really feel horrible about that? Uh, no, I don't. I think it's kind of cool. I did a product 30 years ago, over 30 years ago, I did something that people are still talking about today. And like you say, in social media, there's a lot of shame. People go, oh, look at that person. Look at that. Well, I mean, I haven't molested any children. You know, I haven't, you know, killed anybody. I haven't done anything truly that's a horrible or an abomination. I just did something that a lot of people decided they didn't like. Okay, I get it. But what's interesting is, you know, when we produce media, like you're doing a podcast here, right? Yeah. Why do you do your podcast? Uh, I don't know. It's just uh, intuition. <laughs> it's, it's intuition. No, I mean it's uh, it's a. Uh, I don't know. I'm. Uh, it's it's doing me more than I'm doing it. <laughs> well, that's true. Also, we get taken over by our endeavors sometimes. But I mean, what made you want to do a podcast in the first time? Did you? Was it was it the idea that you want to hide away and not contact people or not have anything to do with other people, or did you want to reach out and touch people and influence? Yeah, the latter. Right. Naturally, anybody who puts out media, any form of media, the goal of media is to to touch people, to evoke something, to create reaction. Right. The goal of media is to uh, begin social discourse and uh, consideration and alter uh, the narrative of what's going on. So I produced something 30 years ago that today is still the focus of media. Look, you're producing media about it today. Uh, it's been all over every form of media, social media, broadcast media, and video games. I always saw those as a broadcast media. That's the way I approached the game. It wasn't just having fun. It was putting together a message that was going to be broadcast out to hopefully millions of people. And... So what I feel is like how many 2,600 games, how many games for the Atari VCS are still a topic today, right? Basically one, okay? So I did something 30 years ago that today is still generating focus, interest, attention, social discourse, uh, media. I consider that a tremendous success in terms of media. 30 years from now, if people are still listening to this podcast, you will have done a great thing, right? Yeah. So that's how I look about it. The idea is, I'm just, I'm not ashamed of what I did. What I did with ET was a huge individual accomplishment. The idea of being able to produce a game that admittedly, although it didn't have a tuning phase, you could say it's not a complete game, but it passed quality control. It went out as a product. And even after returns was still well more than a million seller. Okay. It's not everybody hated it. There are people who enjoyed it. So there are very few ways you can measure the game of ET and call it a real failure, except if you look at how the business environment in which it was handled. And if you look at the opinions of social media, okay, that's where it emerges as a failure. Okay. Atari, uh, overproduced the game and overpaid for the license. Although why they actually did that, it wasn't just about buying the license. In the movie Atari Game Over, uh, that's clarified as to what actually was going on behind the scenes. And these were all, all these things were pieces of a larger puzzle that was going on. But, uh, you know, I... I, I don't it's I don't think I'm in denial over the fact I know that a lot of people don't like ET and uh, tell you the truth I've never argued with someone that ET was a good game anyone who's ever told me they didn't like ET I've never argued with them because those opinions are real right the 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 idea of whether I like something or not I believe that's always a valid opinion one thing I learned at Atari was I saw a lot of consumer testing and I learned what I think is one of the fundamental rules of consumer testing, which is very interesting. And that is that people, people can give you an answer to the question, did you like this or not? People can give you an excellent answer to that question. But they cannot answer the question, what, it, it, what is it you liked or didn't like about it? You can't really get good information that way. 
because consistently at Atari, the marketing department would do testing, and then they would try to get us to put together games that were composed almost exclusively of the things people said they liked and leaving out all the things people said they don't like, and those games never succeeded. Those games just didn't sell. There was no interest in them. Uh, so I think people are very good at, at telling you if they like something, but they're not very good at really telling you why. That's why being a therapist is an interesting thing because people come to me and it's the same sort of principle, right? I mean, people come to me and they say, oh, I'm unhappy or this isn't working for me or I don't like the way this is going, but they're not clear about why, not really clear about why. But what I can do and what I did with games also is find a way to connect with people and help them hear themselves and figure out not what they say is going on, but what's really happening for them and then being able to share that back for them in the form of a game that's like not listening to, not hearing what you say you think is fun, but getting in touch with what actual fun is and then showing that and presenting that to you in a way that you can pick up a controller and work with. And then you go, oh yeah, this is fun. That's it. Okay, well that's a communication. And just like in therapy, I, someone comes in and say, well, I'm, I'm unhappy or this isn't working for me or my relationship isn't really succeeding the way I would like it to. And then they'll start to talk about what they think is going on or what they hear people complaining about or what, you know, they, they have some take on it. But obviously, if that was the accurate take, they would have adjusted it and things would be fine, which they're not. So people come to me so that I, what I do is I'm able to hear I'm able to hear people at a deeper level. That's something I've just kind of always been able to do. I can hear people at a very deep level, and I can hear the difference between what they're saying and what they're meaning. And then what I can do is find a way to speak back to them and feed back the meaning of what they're saying in a way that they can now hear it. And when people can hear what they're actually saying, not what they're just talking about, but what they're really saying, when people can really hear that, they know it, they recognize it, they see the truth of it, and then they can act on it. And it's just with a game. You know, you can talk about what's a fun thing to do in a game or what's not fun or what does work or doesn't work. But the truth is, when you, when you create a game and you give it to someone, they play it and they know if they like it or not. Because either it touches something that's true inside of them or it doesn't. And if it does, it works and it's fun. And if it doesn't, then it's just passe. It's not interesting. So that communication exercise, and in some ways the way I approach games is very much the way I approach therapy, is getting to the truth, getting to the essential truth of things. And that's something that has been a lifelong pursuit of mine in every endeavor. It's that I'm able to see through a lot of garbage to the base reality of things. And then I'm able to speak it and name it very clearly and very specifically. And that is a skill that has served me in almost every endeavor that I'm engaged in. And a phrase that I hear a lot from people for some reason is, oh, that's what I meant. That's what I meant to say. Or I couldn't have said it like that. I hear those, that a lot from people. And it's just, and to me, it's just, that's just always the way I've been. I just say stuff to people and that comes out that way. It took me a long time to get around to the idea of turning it into a profession. <laughs> and uh, your game, Yars Revenge, is in the Museum of Modern Art. Can you tell a bit about that? Absolutely. What a great day that was. And truly, one of, one of the best days of my life was the day I found out that I was going to be a Museum of Modern Art artist. Because Yars Revenge was accepted at the New York Museum of Modern Art. And because that's something... I must have something I always dreamed of was having something in a museum, being on display, having a uh, having a piece of work that I did. But I don't paint or do the kinds of things that typically you would think would wind up in a museum. I'm not a sculptor, and uh, but still something that I did found its way there. And so, and this is another theme of diversity with me that I really like the idea of being able to do radically different things at different times. So. What you can say is that one of my games is in the Museum of Modern Art and another one of my games is the sub-flooring of the New Mexico desert. Again, you know, it's like this that's two very different directions to go in. Yeah, and also it's, uh, you know, for many years uh, people speculated that if video games even was an art form, but 
I think now we've come to the point where it's actually been recognized as an art form. And that is a big question. I've uh, I've written several essays on that. I took a great exception to Roger Ebert's you know comments that games are not art, but it, in some ways it's kind of a silly uh, conjecture to or, or an assertion that games are not art because you know painting isn't automatically art either, right? I mean art is an experience. Art is a communication. You know, art is something that that reaches people and gets through to people on some level. And what video games are is a medium. So you could say, well, uh, video games, the, that the field of video games is no more an art than a paintbrush is art or that a pencil is art, right? I mean, it's a medium. Now, what people write with a pencil is potentially art. It could be. What people create with a paintbrush is potentially art. Okay, and these specific games that people produce, again, well, that's potentially art. It's just a medium, but it was one of the first new mediums in a long, long time. I mean, really, since probably TV, it's probably one of the first new mediums, video games, that took TV, which was a passive uh, medium, and turned it into an active medium that you could interact and engage and that was huge because that's the way I always saw it. I always saw my participation in video games as defining a new medium, being a pioneer in a brand new medium. And that doesn't happen very often. It isn't often that you get to create a new medium. And the Internet's another new medium. It's probably the first new medium since the dawning of video games. There's a lot of different ways people use and approach the Internet, but... Uh, it's basically a medium. So is everything people do on the web art? No, of course not. But it all has that potential because a medium is just, you know, it's that. It's a medium. A medium hosts has the potential to host art, in my opinion. And, and that's the way video games are. It's just a platform. As a psychotherapist, do you have any major influences, like certain uh, uh, psychotherapists or books or...? <laughs> As a psychotherapist, I have nothing but influences. <laughs> Everything influences me. And, uh, you know, there are my, my major theories, the way I approach things, there's, um, I would say one of the, well, the dominant approaches that I take, although it's, my, my approach is an amalgam of many different theories because my feeling is you learn as much as you can you take every different theory and you try to accomplish it and master it to the degree that you can, and it becomes part of the toolbox. Uh, if I were to pick one approach and say this is the one that I favor, it would probably be one called emotionally focused therapy because that's a combination of uh, attachment theory, which is a very psychodynamic, which is more a traditional way of looking at therapy, which is there's things deep in your mind that are in operation that you may or may not be aware of, and that through gaining awareness, you gain the ability to work or deal with that and have more choice in your life, being more about action instead of reaction, which is basically one of my essential theories, about action and reaction. When we're in action, we're doing what we want to do. And when we're in reaction, we're doing what other influences have made us do. We're responding instead of acting. So and I think a lot of life situations come down to whether I'm in action or reaction. And, you know, the psychodynamic school, you know, which Freud launched and has evolved way beyond that, is the idea that there are forces that dictate how are we uh, making choices and how are we setting about things. And some of them we're aware of and some of them we're not. And it's the ones that we're not aware of that really influence our behavior in ways that it's hard for us to deal with or change. And so I, I very much believe in that. But this theory of emotionally focused therapy incorporates that, but it's not exclusively that. It also incorporates what we call systemic theory, which is very interesting because, you know, this is the level at which, you know, systemic theory is about the idea that we're not alone. You know, a lot of traditional psychodynamic stuff and psychoanalysis is just you and the therapist and you're all alone and we're just getting into your mind. We're going to figure out what's happening. It's just about you. Uh, I think the truth is we live in a relational world and I think there's any way, two ways about it. 
In fact, you know, who has a pro if, if, if people existed without other people, if you were in a vacuum, who would have a problem, right? When we talk about having issues or having problems or, or things like that, usually that comes about because of the reactions we're having from other people, not because how we feel about what we're doing. And so things are relational. And you need to look at things in that context of them being interactive. And again, this theme of interactivity, which started for me with video games, uh, still comes through with therapy. And the other thing is what's called the humanistic school, which is the idea that you need to have a, a, a solid relationship and a connection and a bond with a person for, to really be able to do effective work. So it's those three things. One is to look deeply into the mind and see what is under awareness and what is not. The second part is the interactivity, the systemic model, the idea that we're all everything that we do really happens in relation to the people around us, the people in our lives, the people we deal with, the people at work, the people at home. Uh, we're part of systems, and uh, and that it's important to look at how we function and how things are going in our lives, not just about us, but as about us as part of these systems. Because whenever we change, we change the systems that we're in. And that affects other people as well. And that's inevitable. And the other part is about love and connection and joy. And the idea that no real work can progress unless there is a true and genuine connection between uh, a therapist and a client. Okay. That has to be real. If you don't like your therapist, if you just think they're, they're not for you or they're not interesting or they don't know what they're doing or you just don't feel good around them, then it's probably not going to work out well. And you can blame it on therapy, or you can blame it on your issue, you can blame it on all these things, but really you have to have a good connection, a good feeling about who you're working with if, you, if things are going to go well. In fact, that's it, statistically, that's the single most important thing in therapy is that uh, for all the theories and all the different things that people, approaches that people take, the only thing that really correlates extremely highly with positive outcomes is the perception of the rapport by the client. If a client feels that they like their therapist and they feel good about working with their therapist, and they like who the therapist is, they usually do well. That's the one thing that's absolutely for sure. So for me as a therapist, yeah, as I said, what are my primary influences as a therapist? You could say that Susan Johnson, who launched the Emotionally Focused Therapy School, is someone who's very big, but Carl Rogers and uh, people like Mnuchin and Jay Haley and, uh, and people as far-reaching as John Bowlby and, uh, and originally Freud and Jung and Albert Adler, those would be names that I would give you as huge influences. But what I'm really guided by is the idea of a threefold task of uh, bringing what is not within awareness up into awareness by seeing things in the actual systemic landscape, knowing that I, what I do is I do as part of a family, as part of a work community, as part of a social group. I do these things with other people, around other people, for other people. And uh, I think that's important. And having the kind of genuine, caring connection with someone so we both have trust and faith in each other that we're both working towards the same goal in a positive way, those three things layered together, that would be my approach to therapy. I hope, is that clear at all? Because in some ways it's very simple to me and in other ways it's very involved to explain. Yeah, I understand. I, I knew about Freud and Jung, but the other people you mentioned, I, I'm not aware of them. But uh, I haven't studied it, so maybe that's why. Right, and that's the thing. It's always hard to really name names with stuff because when people have studied an endeavor, the names don't mean anything because it's only meaningful to people who really look deeply into it. And most people, most people don't want to look deeply into something. They just want to get the idea of it. And that's one of my skills. So hopefully, when I, that's why I was resistant to naming names when you say, well, who are my influences? I think you asked, what were my influences? And that's a better question. Because it's important to state, I think it's more important just to be able to communicate where I'm coming from and what how I see it. I actually have a very simple model that I use a lot of times for therapy. If you'd like, I could share that with you. Yeah, please do. 
Okay, I call it the trim model, T-R-I-M. And trim, and the way it works is that you take the T stands for triggers, and the R stands for resistance, and the I stands for insight, and the M stands for motion. So you can take trim, the word trim, and you can break it up into TR and IM. And TR is the first phase of therapy, and that's where we have, we examine your triggers, the things that set you off, the things that make things difficult, the things I'm trying to address, and R, which is resistance, because there's a part of us that usually resists. We don't resist getting better. What we resist is change, and that's what the resistance is about. So there's just this inherent resistance to doing anything differently. And so I think the early part of therapy is about triggers and resistance. You put those together, that TR can also stand for what I call treatment, right? Because the treatment phase is about exploring the triggers and dealing and breaking through the resistance and being prepared to get going and, and, and changing and shifting. And then the second part is the I and the M, right? That's insight and motion. And insight and motion are very important because insight is when we get a, an increased awareness, a moment where suddenly I realize something I didn't really realize before. And now I have a greater awareness than I had a while ago. And M is for motion. That's motion is when we act, when things we turn things into real, actual happenings. And so I and the M, insight and motion, I think you need them both because motion without insight can be very dangerous and insight without motion is worthless, right? Because to know and not to do is not to know, you know, to quote many famous philosophers. So, and the I and the M, if you put those together, that could stand for improvement, right? So trim stands for treatment by dealing with triggers and resistance. And then the next phase is improvement, where you combine insight and motion to change the way you approach your life in a more positive way. And you put them together and it's all trim. And that's the trim model for psychotherapy. And I call it trim because it's important to remember that although a lot of people promise phenomenal breakthroughs, and sometimes that happens, but for the most part, you don't explode problems in people's lives. You trim them. You gradually shift out. If you're going to have lasting change, that rarely happens in an explosive, amazing, blinding moment of, of purity, right? Usually what happens is you do some work and you accomplish some things and you improve your perspective and you do you move forward and eventually you do change how you approach things fundamentally and really and then that results in lasting change so that's what i call my trim model for psychotherapy cool well uh, if people want to check out your books or you've made uh, some films also and and your games uh, i don't know if you can still get them maybe online uh, where can they do all this Well, you can always go to my website, hswarshaw.com. That's H-S-W-A-R-S-H-A-W.com. And you can find pointers to most of that stuff. You can, uh, my therapy business is there and I can do, I do therapy with California residents. I can also do uh, teletherapy and I can do coaching. I also do life coaching and business coaching uh, internationally. So you can always contact me through that. My books are available on Amazon. There's The Inspired Intern and Conquering College. I teach people how to save a full year's tuition by graduating early, which is what I did. There's uh, And I've got more coming. So hswarshaw.com or just you know Google me up and you'll find me somewhere. I have a pretty substantial web footprint, I think, these days. Cool. And I'll also link to your site in the program notes. So, oh, and also onceuponatari.com. I should mention Once Upon Atari. I did a documentary series called Once Upon Atari that actually tells what it was like to be a game engineer at Atari in the early days. And everyone who is in this was a game engineer at Atari at the time. So this is the only piece of media about Atari that was ever produced exclusively by people who worked at Atari. Okay, there was no other outside influences. So it's, I think, the most real, most fundamental, most true presentation. And that's both available on, on DVD at onceuponatari.com and also gog.com, G-O-G.com. You can stream it. Uh, you can stream it and download it and to get the DRMs and all that stuff. So, so that's available, Once Upon Atari. Cool. Well, uh, thank you a lot for talking to me. It was very interesting. 
Alex, it was my pleasure. I really appreciate it. And thank you very much for the opportunity. If you want to check out Howard's website, go to hswarshaw.com. And now, since we have been talking to a famous video game designer, I think we should close this episode with some video game music. So sit back and enjoy Smooth McGroove and the song Tetris, theme A a cappella, from the album VGM a cappella volume 3. Go to smoothmcgroove.bandcamp.com if you want to check out more of his music. And all the links will be in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com as usual. Freedom is in the mind. (laughs) 